North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Dr. Coons, last week we talked about social engineering, kinda. Uh, we, we at least diagnosed the fact that we have been socially engineered by powers that are making use of tools that uh, definitely act in an addictive capacity that, at least I asserted, uh, will impact the quality of your spiritual life. I don't mean necessarily the Holy Spirit so much as uh, that energy within you that either feels good or feels bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, so we kind of we kind of recognize that there's there's a social engineering project underway, uh, that it is there to keep us inactive and consuming so that 
we do not become able to uh, effectively live without it, um, that we would be uh, subservient to it in some way. So I am curious if you see a similar um, reality to the way that Lutherans talk about baptism. You mentioned baptism last week as well, and there is, I think, no question that uh, the, the best Lutherans and probably the worst Lutherans all mention baptism uh, in their preaching and teaching more often than your average evangelical does. And yeah. what I find, I think, maybe most interesting is that Lutherans will then mention baptism more than the Bible actually does, whereas the evangelicals will mention it less than the Bible actually does, <laughs> uh, unless, of course, you're, you know, you're, you're becoming a Christian, at which point it, they, they do take it to be very important. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm wondering, again, is, is I, I, don't, I don't want to question the assertion that baptismal identity uh, is essential to Christian discipleship. I, I think that yeah. is absolutely true. What I'm wondering is if somehow we have not socially engineered ourselves out of actual baptismal identity by some sort of emphasizing of the baptism's power um, to the exclusion of its impact and its effect. Um, and, uh, you know, the question uh, that is the third one, I believe, in our small catechism, what uh, is, 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 it's so wonderfully awkward. What does such baptizing with water indicate? You know, like, like nobody talks like that. Um, but it's, it's an imperative question, and I would suggest that it's maybe kind of the least mentioned thing when Lutherans do socially engineer their congregations by preaching about baptism. <laughs> yeah. Social engineer is a, that's a heavy, it's a heavy verb. And, but it is, it is what happens whenever you're listening to something, whenever you're being taught something, you are being, you are being engineered to not only to hear the, the specific propositions, whatever is being asserted or, or whatever sorts of questions are being asked, also the manner in which you're learning. So if they spend a lot of time talking about Baptism actually forgives your sins, for example, but then not about what that indicates for daily life, the way that that last question does, that last distinct question in the series of uh, four different sections on baptism. Then you're like, okay, well, this is the part that I can skip over quickly. And the difficulty there is that if that's the balance, so things, discussions of daily life are neglected relative to discussions of this significance or the the reality of a a one-time event in your life, your baptism, then what's happening is that daily life seems to be disconnected from everything else. And so daily life takes on this, what we described last week as a floating quality, even, even within the church, right? Let alone outside of the church where the floating quality is, is natural to a life oriented toward consumption because you, you eat it or you buy it and then you buy something new or you eat something else. So that floating quality is not actually what you are supposed to have as a Christian. The An alternative to thinking of life that way that we described last time is to think of yourself as someone who has actually died and come back from the dead, which is in fact what the Bible is asserting, what Romans 6 specifically is asserting has occurred with you in baptism. And that the closest analogs that we have to that are things like uh, addicts, recovering addicts, and other people who have a sense that life has simply been granted to them. So 
you'll see this in people where they, you know, some doctor with that wonderful bedside manner that many doctors have say, and I have some pretty close relatives that are, that are in this position right now, they're living beyond their diagnosis. Those people have a, a sense of life that is the envy of most of us because, and the way that I think about this, and this is what I tell people pastorally when I'm called to give some kind of advice or word in these situations is that you simply have a better grasp on reality than the rest of us. That's all. Like the guy that has the five month diagnosis, I could actually die before he does because I could get hit or I could die in a plane crash. And uh, suddenly I'm dead before he is, but I wasn't thinking about it. I didn't think it was going to happen. So I was continuing to do whatever dumb stuff I'm doing with my life instead of repenting and expressing gratitude for the fact that I'm above ground. And he, meanwhile, got both a sense of reality. I could be dead in five months. So what do I do? And he actually got to live those things, which that's really what you should be envious of. Not just that he knows the reality, but that he can also live in accordance with the reality. So the dishonest manager in Jesus's parable gets the sense of reality. And part of what Jesus is saying is that the sons of light live unreal lives much of the time because they don't live in accordance with the future that they know is coming and the future that we know is coming. So we talked last week about you don't know what the future is going to be. Totally true for your own individual life. Cosmically, you know exactly what the future is going to be. So why don't you orient your life in accord with the future you actually know is going to happen? So you may get wealthier, you may get poorer, you may get better, you may get sicker. You know Jesus is coming. You know Jesus is king. So why don't you orient your life right now? And then you won't have to look back and regret nearly so many things because you will have lived a life of significance. And we discussed these things in very, very everyday terms last week. But they're also true cosmically. They're also true theologically. So when you do that, then is it social engineering? I guess so. We can talk about that term this week. But it is certainly a, a way of orienting people's lives that will give them lives of significance now rather than lives occupied with just fruitless, vain things that they will later come to learn if they're lucky. They will later come to learn didn't matter and were worthless. And they they spent, I, I like that verb you used last week, they spent themselves. They spent their souls. They spent them on what was pointless. So I'll go out on a limb and make the claim that the proper distinction of law and gospel is social engineering as designed by the king of the universe, um, that that is, in fact, uh, what the church is, uh, that the word, which is empowered by the spirit, is there to, I mean, engineers a bit of a, a crass term, but it, it's ultimately right um, to to build on the rock a house that will stand. And uh, that then when we have, you know, churches that aren't going to stand, that's, that's, a, that's an important moment to stop and take a look around at the foundation structures and ask, what have we been building with and on at this time? Uh, but that then the, the purpose for preaching uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Lord's Prayer as a daily discipline. The purpose of all of these things is to create in the life of the individuals who then cumulatively are a you in God's sight, create in that 
place, uh, a temple holy and set apart, which stands Mm -hmm. even while the rest of the world is being swept away by the flood. So uh, maybe I'm being too too loose and metaphorical with my understanding of social engineering, but I I don't know. I I really do think that's in fact the purpose of discipleship. Uh, It it is to, uh, to engineer your future by a combination of knowledge and wisdom and discipline. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't say that engineering again is the most organic term we could use to sure. come up with better terms. Um, but, uh, and, and nor is the church merely a social structure, uh, but the, the calling out of darkness into marvelous light, uh, is, it is the building of a people who are kingdom, a kingdom of priests and, and, uh, prophets. So, uh, yeah. Right. And the, the thing that you see most, let's say, frequently, and perhaps with greater frequency, the closer we get to the present, partly because consumption of other forms of social engineering becomes vastly more predominant than the church's preaching. Correct. So historically, certainly in the United States of America, the vastly predominant form of media was the sermon. And that is that is a society organized around informally and and often formally the word of God. And now we shift to a situation in which the word of God is rare in these days. And instead we have every other form of preaching, but it's all, it's all preaching. I mean, I can't actually live without preaching. It's just, the question is always what, what sort of a preacher and, and what is the preacher's teaching? You know, what is, what is the doctrine that's being proclaimed? The pulpit may be a physical pulpit. It may be my phone. It may be my iPad, it may be whatever, but there's a lot of preaching. And one of the things that we can see happening in the 1920s as we get into the Great Depression, 1930s, is this vast increase of which the church is aware at the time. And we've referenced this before, but it's it's always, you always look stupid when you're mocking your ancestors because you probably just don't know what they were going through. In the 1920s, the church is seeing movies as, okay, here's this new thing. Are we into this new thing? In the same way that the listener probably is really familiar with the idea that, you know, you probably shouldn't be on your smartphone during church, like bad idea, or that you don't really need a screen in the church because you have screens everywhere else in life. Like you don't, why don't you just go to church? Funny that they make the argument that's why you need them. I mean, that's, that's literally the argument the other side makes. Right. Anyway, well, okay. Yeah. Well, then let's all like wear our pajamas and, <laughs> you know, um, bring our prescription medications with us too, because those are all normal too. So what what the church is seeing is, okay, here's this new thing. What do we do with it? And large parts of the church, including of our, of our church at the time, and especially the guy that the guy that was actually most, let's say, topical and pertinent was Walter Meyer, who was not yet the Lutheran Hour guy, he he would write for the young people of the church in the Walter League Messenger. And his his attitude was never like, okay, well, you can't go to any movies because they're evil. His attitude was to explain why he didn't think you should go to movies. And there are arguments that our souls have been so shaped to despise our ancestors just appear stupid to us, like that they are frivolous or that they contradict the word of God. And that if I watch people this is this is pre-code Hollywood. If you go back to our Hollywood history episodes, this is pre-code Hollywood. So these are actually pretty racy. And certainly for the day, they're very racy. That if you watch that, it's going to change you. And it's going to change you in, a, in an evil way. So don't do it. So you can laugh at that or not laugh at that, whatever you want to do. 
But the issue is that you go back and look at that and you realize that I'm both facing battles that I have faced before. And if I don't know anything about the past, I don't know how or why people that I supposedly am on the same team as face them in ways that seem absurd to me. Engineering is a loaded word, and I'm not going to quibble over metaphors or terms, but the reason the term is loaded is because engineering seems like such a heinous thing to do to a human soul, Hmm. is that we would treat it like it's like a machine. But this is, in fact, the way that you are treated by advertisers and movie producers and so forth, and you always have. And it's in the lifetime, but especially the public career of Herbert Hoover, whom we mentioned last week and we'll, we'll pick up this week. It's in his life that this becomes practically ubiquitous. So if we feel overwhelmed by smartphones, they felt overwhelmed by public advertisements and radio. The issue is not what people at different times, what forms of media they consume. The question is never does, you know, how high is the pulpit or is the pulpit made out of wood or some other material? The question is, what is the doctrine that your soul is imbibing? That's always the question. And it was back then too. And so it's at that time that you get a growth in especially what will come to be called social engineering that's made possible by new media. But, you know, one of the, (laughs) one of the delicious ironies here is that prior to becoming totally insignificant in almost everyone's estimation, Herbert Hoover was relatively famous for being so great (laughs) at public relations and managing the media for his own benefit. That's where Ozzy Mendez comes in and it's really, really helpful as a, um, just as a story uh, to see a man at the peak of what the world would say. I mean, think Donald Trump right now, right? Yeah. Like the world, like him or not, the world kind of revolves around Donald Trump at the moment. And (laughs) um, so, you know, imagine now, very likely even 75 years from now, no one knows who he is. Nobody really cares. Someone's heard his name. You know, you had, you had to like see his picture once in fourth grade or something. And, uh, you know, and maybe, and maybe Trump tower is still there, but it's not what it was. It's pretty leaks leaks left and right. And someone, you know, uh, there was a fire there three weeks ago and that that's actually the the dam. (laughs) But, um, uh, yeah. So that's quite a, a potent kind of push on the, the, the insignificance we talked about last time that you're sitting where you are feeling like you don't have the capacity to do what you ought to be able to do. Like it doesn't matter where you are. It's that you're you and you've been put there. And now again, fight the battle that is good where you are, um, which for all of us who are Christians means we have to stop them from socially engineering us. We we just have to, we can't let them keep doing this because Two, even if you think that you're winning for a while, you may not win finally, and that the desire to to win in some sort of humanly recognized way is the precise way to lose, right? So the, the opposite of someone like Herbert Hoover would be the, the early Christian martyrs in this specific way, that they are not reckoned by anyone as, as Christ himself is not. They're not reckoned by their contemporaries as important or impressive, Right. They, they win by virtue of God's remembrance of them and then the church's remembrance of them. That's how they live, right? And because they live to God and they live in him. And so they remain alive, right? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. When you think about someone like 
like Hoover, for example, a president, it's it's right to bring up the image of you know your fifth grade classroom, where you have a strip across you know maybe the top of the board, and it's been carefully laminated, and it has a lot of little oval portraits on it, and some of those men are utterly unknown to really anybody. Probably not all the listeners. If I said James Garfield could tell me a single thing about him, let alone that he was accounted as perhaps the most brilliant man ever to be president when he was elected. Now he has the misfortune to be shot. Yeah. What a story. <laughs> so <he> never get, <laughs> what a yeah. story. So he never gets to prove it. But the, the, the point is that recognition by men, including by oneself, and a lot of the things that we talked about last week were about one's own sense of life or sense of self-recognition, like I have arrived where I wanted to be, or I, I have become the person I wanted to become, or whatever the case may be. Even that kind of recognition, let alone recognition or memory by other men apart from God, apart from Christ, those things are both fleeting and, if you have wisdom, truly insignificant, truly, truly insignificant. A man who once said that what people are reckoned to be is of no account to him, St. Paul, I mean, ironically, has plenty of churches across the world named after him, but that's not what he was living to do. So I think one of the best ways to be insignificant is to pursue significance for its own sake, for oneself, for one's, I don't know, sense of why you get up in the morning. The significance that is found in others and in sacrifice for others, that can be pursued with self-forgetfulness. Hoover is such a great example or counterexample of these things because both of what we mentioned last time where he is accounted as obviously successful, but also because everything he turned his hand to did, in fact, objectively, not just subjectively in the realm of media relations, it did succeed for a very long time. So this is one of the great ironies of his life, and this will introduce us into, we'll talk a little bit about the Great Depression next week as well, and that'll get us into discussion of Roosevelt's America and, and, and how that changes and how important the 1930s are, both for what came out of World War I, but also what gets us into World War II and our sense of ourselves, is Hoover is, I, I mentioned last time, extremely successful and therefore becomes extremely wealthy. He travels all over the world sometimes with his family, sometimes not with his family because of the dangerous nature of the places that he goes for the sake of pursuing generally gold, but also sometimes coal, different, anything having to do with mining. So he's very wealthy when on the outbreak of the First World War, he is one of a you know number of American expatriates in London who help get Americans stranded by the suddenly hostile nature of the seas home. So he organizes effectively a massive rescue effort to get Americans out of combat zones or hostile zones or problems where being from a neutral country at the time, because remember, we're not in the war until 1917, where any of that would be a problem. And he gets them all home. This tremendously impresses everyone in London, which is at the time, a war, you know, the world capital city in the way that DC would be today. And that gets him appointed to something that this really is a wonderful thing that Belgium, that we've mentioned before in discussing World War I, is a place where people are starving because it's a war zone. 
just a commonality you can see between both wars and times after war, especially, is that famine is usually a cause is usually caused by human action. Sometimes really remotely, you could say, well, humans are trying to farm an area that really can't be farmed well. And so, but even more often, and certainly in the 20th century, famine is much more common when and where human beings are simply destroying everything and each other. And that causes famine in the civilian population. Hoover works with both sides up to America's entry into the First World War in order to get food to the Belgians. He'll work with Germans. He'll work with British. He'll work with whoever. He just wants them to be fed. So this is really a wonderful thing. When we get into the war, he then, because he's so good at that, okay, then he's in charge of our National Food Administration, which is an organization run by our government to get the American people to contribute to the war effort, to produce what would be most beneficial to the troops, to they have a couple different campaigns. They'll have meatless Mondays or wheatless Wednesdays, and you go without that, and then that gets donated instead. It's sort of like sometimes churches will do this where you skip a meal and you donate what you would have used for that meal to the needy or something, that kind of idea, but in the service of the government's war effort. So he does that. Very successful. Relies on persuasion, believes the American people will respond. Successful at that. After the war, he's then appointed by our government in order to relieve a famine in Soviet Russia, which they have right after the Bolsheviks come to power. Again, enormously successful. So this is all down to 1921. So everything that he's done in his life, everything, including defending himself and his wife from colonial uprisings in places like China earlier in life and surviving under the most difficult physical circumstances, he has succeeded. And everyone actually knows it. I mean, in this case, people know how good he is at what he does. That's why, as we mentioned last time, both political parties are going to try to draft him for a political life. And the way that he comes into public life is as a member of first President Harding's and then President Coolidge's cabinets as Secretary of Commerce. He develops a lot of business initiatives. It's the 1920s. Everything's going great. One of the enormous ironies of Hoover's life is that he's going to be remembered, if he's remembered at all, for failing to fix anything about the Great Depression, which begins traditionally. There are other problems going on here, but it begins traditionally with the stock market crash of October 1929, by which time Hoover has already been elected president of the United States. The irony is that in the roughly eight years before that time, when he's in public service, but he's he's not elected, he's a cabinet official, Hoover is one of the very few people in the United States who is paying particularly close attention to the fragility of the American economy. <laughs> so one, sometimes when people talk about times before recession, they'll say nobody saw this coming or, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's there's people like Peter Schiff the financial analyst who will constantly be predicting a recession because every once in a while you're right. Well, Hoover's one of the very few people who thinks systemically about how or why the American economy could fall apart. And the, the leading indicator of difficulty in the 1920s is the fact that our farmers and our family farms never really recover from how unprofitable many of them had proven to be by 
let's say roughly 1925. So the cost of being a farmer has increased exponentially. Family farms are beginning to fold pretty rapidly in the 1920s. It's nowhere near the very low percentage of American workers that it is today, but it's already starting to happen actually. So this is like something that if you're familiar with farming today, this is a hundred year progression to the point where we are now, where it's such a tiny percentage of American workers. Can, can you answer in, in a really brief way, like what was the cause of these failures as farmers? Was it the wrong crops? Was it, um, it couldn't have been the cost of uh, tools just yet. It's, it's too early. For no, that. no. To some degree, it is land price in different places because we don't really have a frontier. So there are increasingly fewer places that you can go and start up a new life. Some of it is wage growth in other areas of the economy. So if we're, remember 1920 is the tipping point for the United States when we become, for the first time, we are a predominantly urban country, predominantly, not by any means overwhelmingly, but predominantly. And so wage growth, job growth, opportunity abounds in a place in 1920, like Los Angeles, and not in a place like... I don't know, Iowa, the way it had maybe 40 years earlier. So is an so, attempt to maintain a a lifestyle that is new um, as opposed to just subsistence farming? Because I, I, why why would subsistence farming yeah. fail? That's my question, right? I mean, aren't they, yeah. aren't they able to at least eat? Well, subsistence farming is not failing, but there are, there are very few subsistence farmers in the United States, yeah. purely okay. speaking. So every, everyone is commercialized to some degree, commercialized doesn't particularly mean terribly mechanized, certainly in 1920, but it means that you are sustaining your life via surplus production that you sell on some kind of market. Right. And okay. if you can't do that, then what exactly are you doing? So you already, I mean, in 1920, you already have specialization. It's nowhere near where it is today but you, you have it. And those are the margins that you're living on. So if your you know, fruit, you know, orchards fail in Western New York or your dairy in Wisconsin fails, then you have a problem, even though it's, it's only 1923 and, you know, monoculture is still in the future. So it's, it's because we are perhaps primarily as a country, a market, and railroads make us a market and make commercialized farming practically necessary, That that's why you begin to have family farms fail. That's part of it. Another part of it is just kind of the other side of that same coin, which is I can obtain a better life working at this factory or whatever right. in this city. Right. Yeah. And, th and that was always, you know, that was always part of it, right? Is that most Americans and certainly in the Midwest, which is full, absolutely full of people who came here in the 19th century, they were here to get a better life. They were not here. And probably that's true for almost any people that came here at any time in American history. They were not here for, you know, whatever, so that they could live in independent religious communes. I mean, that's, that's right. a very small percentage. <laughs> so, so, so that's just the way it is. And, and so as those incentives change, that's also happening. In in addition to the, to that, there's another factor in the collapse of family farming or the beginning of the of a collapse in family farming, and that is that the cost of of inputs is high and the and the price of outputs is low. 
So you get people squeezed because this costs more and this costs more. And if this guy buys a tractor, I can't compete with him. And then the cost that I'm getting, the price that I'm getting for what I do produce is lower and in fact plummets after World War I ends. Because wars generally mean economic booms. So they're good for producers of, of various kinds, great for farmers. When that collapses in, say, 1919, 1920, suddenly we have a situation where you know, it, it costs more to farm, but I'm getting so much more. Now it still costs more, and I'm not getting hardly anything. So that's why you have this decrease. And it's, it's really at a crisis point by about the middle of the 1920s. So it's like farmers never really actually get a, a roaring 20s. They get they get a whimpering twenties, and and Hoover is one of the people who's actually most keenly aware of that. So from so there, what, yeah. yeah, so I mean, so what what he's putting together in like 1925, 1926 are a series of specially commissioned reports on what do we do specific to agriculture, but generally economically, in order to counteract the fact that we have these boom bust cycles. And this will periodically just destroy entire sections of the country and could, this is what's so weird, is he's the guy that gets charged with destroying the country. This could destroy everything. So we don't want that to happen. So what do we do, right? This is called anti-cyclical behavior at the time. And so how do I how do I make the cycle smaller or less frequent or what do I do? Because I don't want people to live great for five years and then hand to mouth for three years and then great for four years and then hand to mouth for four years or whatever the the cycles are. So what do I do instead? What I do instead is I provide for loans. I provide for all of these recommendations that are in fact government measures to help people counteract the effects of economic depressions. Hoover is actually ready to go with all of that even before he's president. So by the time he becomes president, the stock market is giving signs of trouble in early 1929. But it's not at any kind of like crisis level that people are like, oh, you know, President Hoover needs to start doing something right now. So the first like roughly nine months of his presidency are very, they're very, very calm. His sense of capability, he gets up early every morning he works out i mean he does he does everything a good productive person is supposed to do he's at his desk early he leaves his desk late doing it all okay and that is bringing to his task not only diligence but also the approach that he has tackled all previous tasks which is an engineering approach so here's the problem here's here are some proposed solutions. Here's the best solution. Let's implement this solution. Let's make sure that we're implementing it thoroughly. And that's just how he kind of attacks everything. And so he's very active and he's really, he's a Republican, but he's really a Republican, maybe more in the model of Theodore Roosevelt than a lot of other Republicans then and, and maybe also now. So he disagrees with many of his fellow Republicans that the government should do relatively little. He really disagreed with his boss, President Coolidge, in the previous administration about that. Coolidge didn't think the government could or should do much about anything. Hoover totally disagrees, and he's very active as a president. Stock market crashes. I mean, bottoms out. It had, there were big shocks before, 
late October 1929, bottoms out 1929. This begins to have knock-on effects and everything else. Everything else slows. First hiring freezes, wage freezes, followed by just firings, closure, all kinds of things. Things that we are, in fact, I think, in many places seeing now. And what's interesting about that is that at the time, and certainly initially, the press is extremely favorable to Hoover because it's always been favorable to Hoover, right? So the media has always liked him because he's communicative and he appears to be different from other politicians in the presidency is his first elective office ever. He's never been elected to anything because he gets appointed to things because he's so competent and then he achieves things. So there's always a nice story. There's a heartwarming story about he fed, he fed this many Belgian orphans. There's a heartwarming story about he prevented utter starvation in Soviet Russia when the Soviets were starving their own people. This is long before Ukraine and Holodomor in the 1930s. So he's extremely capable. He does wonderful things. So he has, in fact, as he enters this crisis, which will define his memory, he has all kinds of goodwill, even from the most potentially critical parties. This will, in fact, not matter. Because the measures that he takes in order to counteract the depression will rely on people's maintaining their personal initiative in life. So there are things that his successor, FDR, will do that will basically be very obviously jobs programs or will be in any way possible as 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 close as possible as he can get to this. Something that our government did during COVID, which is just handing out money. Hoover, Hoover believes that that's economically unsound. <laughs> He's right about that. Yo. You can't just hand out money with no economic impact, but he hands out money. And when he does, when he refuses to hand out money. And what he does instead is he tries to spur people's initiative, tries to provide incentives for both employers to hire more people and employees to find better jobs or different jobs. And he's doing that. He, he begins to work maniacally, 18, 20 hours a day. Okay. Now, as he does this, the press becomes less and less favorable, such that they coin a term that I still don't hear people use for any particular contemporary politician, that the encampments of, we would call them the homeless, they were called hobos at the time, generally, that those encampments are Hoovervilles. Mm -hmm. So we talked a long time ago about Brazil and the favelas and how those become actually permanent shanty towns. We have not permanent, but you know, semi-permanent shanty towns in the United States today, and we did in the 1930s. And the 1930s, the press began to teach people to call them Hoovervilles. So what happened to Hoover is something that I see happening right now to Biden, which is those who were on his side are now turning against him. So you're getting, you're getting just about right now as we record this in 2022, summer 2022, you're getting some of the same thing that you begin to get with Hoover in, say, 1930. Certainly 1931, he's elected in 28, is you begin to get the media, you can you can watch them shift. And as they shift, as in this case, let's put it more generically, as people's opinion of you shifts, then your sense of whether what you're doing is actually worthwhile also shifts, even if you're doing the same thing that you were doing when they liked you, when they approved of you, when they weren't naming hobo encampments after you. So as that shifts, Hoover becomes dispirited. 
And he's a very different person from Trump. Nixon is maybe somewhere in between the two of them in terms of personality that Hoover really cannot stand the idea that people dislike him. Okay. Trump seems to enjoy when people dislike him. Go ahead, John. Well, yeah, except for that, like, that's how he put his foot in it so many times during the his presidency was he kept trying to, like, get someone on the other side to understand him. And then they would, like, betray him. And, you know, any, any, I, I, I think. he. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, no, I mm-hmm. no, I know what you're talking about. And I think that that has to do with something that is also that that's actually a problem that Hoover has. I think it's a slightly different problem. I guess what I mean is Trump loves an antagonistic relationship with media. Hoover cannot believe, could not believe that he had an antagonistic relationship with the media because I think he thought that public opinion was governed by just neutral considerations of whether you're doing a great job. Right. Justice. Yep. Justice. And so when that begins to turn on him, he can't handle it. He is like Trump in the way that you identified, which is a certain naivete about what is even occurring in the political process. That that Trump thought of it perhaps a little bit more like the rest of his life where people become personally loyal to them and then he works with them and it's a fruitful relationship. And he did not understand the nature in this way of what we would now call, but I think we erroneously call a deep state. So deep state is a, is a Turkish term for holdovers from a different kind of regime still operative despite the apparent superficial coming of a different kind of regime or a different government. America perhaps is shaped that way after the Second World War. Before the Second World War, we're not. The government simply is not large enough. It won't even be large enough once the New Deal is implemented by FDR. It, but it does work in this way, that in something that is a matter of public opinion, public opinion is governed by people. Public opinion is not a phenomenon of the public. And a great person to read about this is Walter Lippmann on public opinion, who is a contemporary of Hoover's. Lippmann is well aware, as are some people with whom he's rather closely connected, Edward Bernays, that's the father, as we've discussed before, of propaganda, father of propaganda, nephew of Sigmund Freud. Lippmann is well aware that public opinion is something that is crafted or shaped or produced. So this is something about social engineering that I think Hoover the engineer doesn't quite understand. I think he thinks there are problems and those can be solved in an engineering way. And then there's just like fairness and people are fair to you when you're fair to them or they're unfair to you when you're unfair to them. That the, that the universe is somehow in, in some sense, I mean, he's a Quaker, but the universe is somehow karmic. Mm-hmm. And this is indeed not, not true. And he does not understand, he's very naive about the fact that public opinion is crafted. So public opinion will give you images of desperation, images of destruction, images of desperate, sad, gaunt, oaky mothers sitting by the side of the road, homeless, with their starving, barefooted children if that is politically necessary or useful. It wasn't exactly in late 1929. They weren't fed up with him. But Hoover is no longer a darling by that time. And so what's interesting is that if you pursue good favor, success, etc., you may in your own life experience a kind of death similar to what Hoover does. 
because by the time he leaves the presidency in 1932, FDR comes in, he's going to be there. He's going to get reelected three more times. FDR has completely changed his opinion of Hoover and the media had already decided to back FDR. So FDR will sweep all before him in 1932. The reason being opinion other men's estimation, even one's own estimation of oneself, especially when yoked to the opinion of others. Opinion is necessarily fickle in most people, and it's crafted by those who are not fickle. And Hoover simply doesn't understand this. So he may be surprised, and you may be surprised to hear, that when FDR is campaigning for Hoover's opponent in 1928, before the crash, before he's, before Hoover's no longer a darling, FDR complains about Hoover and in favor of Al Smith, the first Catholic presidential candidate for a major party. He says, Al Smith will not interfere in your life. Herbert Hoover is far too obsessed with government intervention into Americans' lives. That is basically, he's trying to be a social engineer in later terms. Now, this is precisely the opposite of what FDR will later say, and it is definitely the opposite of how Hoover will be remembered. He'll be remembered for not doing enough, not trying hard enough. Whereas before the depression, he's criticized for trying too hard, for being too interventionist, for using some military troops to help clean up after a giant flood in the Mississippi River Valley in 1927. So he's doing too much and now he's not doing enough. What is he doing? Well, in both cases, he's always doing what, what he has always done. So what you've got here is within his own life, he gets to experience high, absolute low while being the exact same person, both when he's estimated as perhaps the most wonderful man ever and when he's estimated as the most ineffectual, worst president ever. And that is a kind of death that you don't want to live through, but many people do because they hitch their sense of significance. They hitch their sense of what life is for to the opinion of others and then are horrified to find out that the opinions of others are utterly fickle, especially when crafted by people like the media or politicians with more experience like FDR, when people who are experts at crafting opinion get involved in doing so. Uh, man, it brings to mind something that I'm, I'm grasping and can't quite get, which is an, uh, another story about a similar fall from from yeah. fame in the American era. But then I also uh, recently re-listened to something on uh, uh, Caesar and Pompey and uh, highs and lows again. Um, uh, men who both in their own own times saved their country uh, and yet yeah, right. bo- both end very ignominiously. Uh, you know, Pompey stabbed on the back on a beach in Egypt and, and Caesar um, <laughs> stabbed in the back in, in Rome. And uh, uh, so, you know, the... If the lesson that I'm I'm picking up is what you're laying down, uh, it is it is to see that in one very real way, uh, your destiny, so far as public opinion is concerned, is absolutely out of your hands. Uh, that um, you know to to live for karmic justice, as if it's going to make you uh, happy or wise, uh, is to pursue a certain <laughs> kind of folly. Um, right. And uh, what perhaps and I, I, can't, I don't want to put myself in Hoover's shoes, but like if you're going to do what it's right, you're going to do what's right because it's right. And you're going to take what comes and be glad you do what was right, regardless right. of what the outcomes. If you're going to judge what you do uh, based on its outcomes, uh, even the evil won't necessarily serve you. It won't. Um, and so is that where you're going with this or, or 
Yeah, again, I think that's enlighten. right. I think I think also it's it's helpful to say this because when I say Quaker, you know, we've talked about Quakers before. I think they're they're definitely disproportionately important in American history as a group. Hoover and Nixon are their presidents. There's never been a Lutheran president, even though there are a lot more Lutherans than Quakers. So Quakers do matter, but maybe that is off-putting to the listener who's Catholic or Lutheran or whatever. You know, oh, I'm not a Quaker, so they're just weird. But Hoover engages in a certain kind of behavior that I think will be familiar to many Christians, which is that when slandered in public, he does not respond. And it's not just that he doesn't respond in kind. I think that is what is so off-putting about Trump to many Christians, is that he will respond in kind. Like if you mock him, he will mock you. It's also what is perhaps effective about him. Oh, I, I tell you, it's good sure. comedy. It's good comedy Yeah, and, and it's, it's funny. He's, he's just a classic <laughs> kind of Catskills comedian. It's like a seventh grader, man. It's, it's yeah, just, yeah. Yes, right. Uh. Um, so it's not just that Hoover doesn't respond in kind. He simply doesn't respond because it's like he's above everyday life. Mm-hmm. And when that happens or... What what is occurring is that it it's like it's sort of like what you were saying about baptism at the outset of this week's show. It's like what you're saying never actually touches life. Yeah. So Hoover is working constantly, but the people have no sense that he cares. Hoover is trying constantly to seek their betterment before his presidency, during and after. No one has a sense that he is human or connected. Hoover is a tireless worker and recognized by the people closest to him as a wonderful human being. No one else can see that. And so there is a there is a certain kind of idealism or a desire to be justified by what you are doing in the eyes of others rather than also realizing that human beings have to be communicated to, not just helped, but communicated to that he refuses to engage in. He's not good at making speeches. He doesn't want to. And those things harm him ultimately very, very deeply. This returns to something that we've talked about with people's life choices before, that especially if you're going to pursue something that is has nothing to do with the liberal arts or with the humanities, that's okay. And that's fine for most people. It's not fine for leaders. Leaders need to study and practice the traditional liberal arts, literature, rhetoric, ancient languages, history, because you need to know human beings and you need to communicate with them. If you can't do that, you are only shooting yourself in the foot. It doesn't matter how competent you are or how good you are, because even in a non-elective system, and I mean, our, our system of government functionally is not actually elective if the opinions of the electorate can be so keenly and quickly shaped and reshaped by public opinion makers, right? Our system of government is somehow accountability to the fourth estate, to public opinion makers. So even in that case, it's not actually elective. Uh, They will vote for you if they feel like they've been told they should vote for you. So even in that case, you still need some sort of relationship or warmth or something. So conversely, somebody who is just much better at leadership in this pure way, although in many ways kind of a garbage human being compared to Hoover, is FDR. Mm -hmm. Because FDR understands that if he talks on the radio, it's going to sound like he's sitting in someone's living room and he can reassure them on the radio 
that he cares about them and he's trying to help them. It doesn't really matter, finally, that Hoover had a beautifully articulated philosophy of government in a book that he wrote in the early 20s called American Individualism, or that he's going to reiterate that and provide a very interesting critique of FDR in a book called Challenge to Liberty that comes out in 1936. So, you know, during the very end of FDR's first term when he's running for his first re-election. It doesn't matter. What matters for the purposes of leading men are, first of all, whether it seems like their souls are being handled well by you or poorly. And their sense of that is not solely conditioned by the job that you're doing. It's also conditioned by how you communicate what job you are doing. And Hoover is atrocious at communicating. So when he gets out of office, there is almost no one who's ever left the presidency in greater disgrace than he. I mean, Warren Harding (laughs) had the good fortune to die while enduring some disgrace earlier in the 20s. Hoover doesn't even get to die. He has to live another 32 years knowing that everyone thinks he was completely wrong about what was supposed to be the crowning achievement of his life. That's not a final historical judgment. And as we kind of slide into talking about FDR next time in the 30s, more generally, I'm going to be using Hoover's perspective on these things, which he did write down and have been put out now by the Hoover Institution at Stanford under George Nash, who's just kind of a wonderful historian. But as interesting and even cogent as that perspective is, functionally for Hoover's own life, it didn't matter because he was atrocious at communicating what his life was or was for or what he was doing to the people for whom he was ostensibly doing it. So this makes me think of something that I pulled out of the way too much engineering productivity previous life I lived of wanting to yeah. figure out how to hack everything. Yeah. Um, but it's it's an interesting idea. It, it, you know, you're you're planning to do something. You're gonna you're gonna start a business. You're gonna you know come up with the next idea. You're gonna you're gonna do a startup. Blah blah blah. And so you're you. You're clever. You're smart. You're educated. But you know you're poor. So you need to find not only uh, someone to buy your product. That's important. Um, but before that, even you need someone to buy the idea that they should invest in your product. And so what you need to do or have happened to you is to wind up in an elevator with somebody who happens to be really able to do this and in 20 to 30 seconds quickly and winsomely convey your concept without appearing to be selling anything, but to in fact uh, be expressing um, the value of your idea. Yeah. And uh, what they would uh, suggest, I mean, that this was like Tim Ferriss, uh, is effectively, you know, get a mirror, start working on it, be confident in it. And I, I don't think that this is a one-to-one with telling people about Jesus. Um, n- not exactly. Um, but I, I do find it interesting how awkward I have found it as a Lutheran pastor <laughs> to invite people to church. Yeah. It's, it's almost like I, I'm demurring about it. It's like, well, you know, I'm a pastor, but I get it. You don't want to come to my church. Like, that's like the starting point. <laughs> and I don't know if that's me. I don't know if that's our training. I don't know if anyone else listening has had this this issue. But it's been something where um, I, I've had to, like, rethink about this. And, like, it, and it's not about, like, hey, so we got justification wrong, right, and the Catholics got it wrong, and, and that's why you should come to my church. It, it's more the capacity to show interest in the human being's spiritual wellness 
and to believe that where I am a preacher, that that will be served and to convey that in some way. Now, I'm, I'm using me because I'm me, not somebody else, but a bunch of you out there who aren't pastors, it doesn't even have to be about Jesus, right? Uh, this is about talking to your wife about what you want out of life. This is about uh, talking to your men at church about what you imagine and would like to see the congregation be. This is about if you want to start that local commune, right? I mean, I, let's not go cult here, but like you want to get that local group together working on this, that, or the other thing. Uh, how able are you to talk about it like it's interesting, like it's valuable, right? right? Yeah. Uh, right. Or, or or is it just some sort of like again, uh, you know, uh, platonic idea? Like you could write it, you could write a thesis about right. it, and and they need to read it, right? Like, well, that's that's not going to help us here. Um, you have to be able to, uh, I sound like such an evangelical, you have to be able to, to convey the vision um, and to do so uh, quickly. And uh, what you're advocating here, Dr. Kuntz, is that a knowledge of history, a knowledge of philosophy, a knowledge of literature will equip you to be this person. And my guess is, again, you know, the DC Universe timeline, not so much. <laughs> no, well, because that, that's not designed, that's not designed to make you a person. That's designed to make you a consumer and a consumer is, is not actually necessarily alive. I mean, a consumer could be dead. Like my, my trash can receives things every day. It takes in things every day. It consumes things every day, yet it is not alive. Something that is alive may need to eat, but it fundamentally, you know, respirates, moves. If it's a human being, hopefully prays, talks, thinks, so you're you're not you haven't been trained actually to be productive or capable or something and the reason that the liberal arts are called liberal or freeing or that you are a free man if you have studied them is precisely because it makes you free in those aspects of life whether it's for your schooling formally or you're just reading something informally or practicing something informally it's because it makes your soul free. And when you are focused simply on work or productivity per se, whether you are an engineer or anything else, as Hoover was an engineer, then the problem here is, is not, it's not that you have too much to do or you're not productive enough as if you're like a machine with some kind of reduced output and you just need to up your output and then you'll be good to go. The problem is that your life is centered on production, sheerly speaking, and not on human beings. And the liberal arts are focused on the human soul and then secondarily on the human souls touched by that well-educated, actually free human soul. Now, those, those very human things, those liberal arts things can be captured for the purposes of very great evil. But if you have them and you are a good man, then they are marvelously productive in a way that simply being productive itself or competent itself or hardworking itself really is not. And Hoover is just one of the best character studies you could possibly find of somebody who really is, he's a pretty good human being as human beings go. All of this is, of course, relative, but he's a pretty good human being and he's he's great at pretty much everything he sets his hand to. The problem is, he cannot explain to other people why they should actually care because short of relieving famines, it's not especially pertinent why someone should care what you think. So in a situation where things are ambiguous, the future is unknown, P 
people are are stressed and distressed, people are undergoing massive personal changes. If you can't articulate why you're trying to lead them in a particular path, it doesn't matter that you would actually be good at leading them in that path. Which again brings me back to the place of the average Lutheran, both preacher and layperson in in the present moment. Um, we seem to not be very good at communicating why anybody should care. I'm not sure we even know why we should care other than that we're right, darn it. But that's not really human, right? Um, no, no. It, it's no. not human. I, it, 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 well, it is, it is for a certain subset of humans, and, and we usually attract that subset of humans, right, who are simply motivated purely by is this right or wrong? And it's not that that's a wrong question. It's that it is not an, an it is not a complete question. There are other things that are going to go with truth, right? So we've we've mentioned before that historically virtues are associated with each other. Or you see this not only in philosophy but also in the Bible that there is a fr a fruit of the spirit and that it is manifold, right? It's the same way with truth. With truth goes life. With life goes way. With truth goes beauty. With beauty goes truth. Whatever is excellent, whatever is profitable, these all go with truth. So if I believe that I have the truth without denoting a way or without providing a life or without showing what is profitable or without displaying what is excellent, then perhaps I only have a part of the truth. Yes. <laughs> because I'm not actually able to show how that truth is connected to a life or a a way that we walk or a capacity for discernment of what is worthwhile if, or an enjoyment of what is beautiful. If the truth is supposed to set you free, then why aren't we? Right, right. Why are we enslaved or why are we so anxious? And right. I, the, the and one way that I can tell that, that you are right, Jonathan, is that I will say something like, if you believe the Lutheran doctrine of justification, then you will display the same indifference to human opinion that St. Paul, who articulates that doctrine best, displays. Because for him, it's it's two sides of the same coin. I either care about the estimation of men, and therefore I am still a Pharisee, or I don't because my life was apocalyptically ended and changed by Jesus Christ. And so what men think about what I'm doing just doesn't matter very much. It matters sometimes a little bit when they're watching me eat meat sacrificed to idols in the temple. I don't want to screw them up too much. But as far as when people say, oh, this is what you should do with your life, or this is what you did do, or this is what it was worth, or you were a horrible president, or you were a bad pastor, or whatever it is that people say, it really doesn't matter that much. I mean, I can't tell, and I know that you have gone through this too. I can't tell you the number of people who have opinions now about my life and about things that I've done in the past six months. I mean, many people are experts. That's fine. I mean, that's just how people are. They like to think about other, they like to live vicariously, right? They really do. I'm suggesting that you weren't meant to live vicariously and that I don't, because I actually believe the doctrine of justification by faith. I just don't care that much about people's opinions. It's not a, it's not a bitter or angry indifference. It just truly doesn't matter because I'm baptized. So I think that one reason that it's hard for people to communicate these things or we're relatively disinterested in or, or incapable of saying them is that it's not clear to a lot of us how or why these things are connected to life. Because if I talk about opinion connected to justification, 
I'll even have Lutheran pastors just kind of looking at me with their mouths open. And then I take them in and I show them, okay, here's Paul talking about justification Galatians. Now look right next to it here. He's talking about how he doesn't care about people's opinion. (laughs) Isn't that weird? You know? And they're like, oh, I never thought of it that way before. And I know they haven't because it's like the truth is divorced from everything else going on in life. Whereas you're supposed to orient everything else in life with that in harmony with truth because truth goes with all of these other things. Yeah. So the best I got on that is, is there's this, there's this spirit that we all, LCMS, I'm talking to you and I'm not free from it yet, but we all have imbibed too deeply of in which our dogmatics are a philosophical construct, mostly used to justify our existence, not our spirits, our existence as a, as a body, as a church. And so a lot of what we call preaching uh, is, in fact, self-justification by dogma. Whereas um, it's not that it's the dogma itself is, is wrong. It's just somehow it's become disconnected from, I don't know, the Bible, um, you know, the history of the Bible, uh, the understanding of the, the spiritual um, discipline of discipleship, uh, the expectation that church is not something that happens on Sunday, but is a, a kingdom in real time, all the time, every day. Um, and and part of what I think maybe will illustrate this uh, a little bit, going back to our elevator sales pitch, right? So so yeah. I, I meet the plumber in the elevator. I'm a pastor. We, we got to have a little chat. Like how, how many LCMS pastors would say something like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm over here at this place and uh, and he's like oh yeah okay so what's that about so, well honestly we're the most free people I've ever met and if you come and join us I promise you within a year of devoting yourself to study your spirit will be lifted your eyes will be opened and you will walk as a new man like I don't think we're allowed to say that in the Lutheran Church I think that would be seen as some sort of what uh, prosperity gospel church growth tactic Baptist decision theology even though it's all biblical language. And it's effectively what justification does do or should be yeah. supposed to, right? So how how have we how have we so shackled the the beautiful truth of being declared innocent in God's sight on the last day um by a I don't know, a, a fleshly uh disbelief, right? In which it is it is merely a a, a self justification for a institutional existence. And somehow in in the reformation that needs to take place, um, the righteousness of God uh, needs to mean something again to us. Um, and uh, not that it doesn't. And again, the passion rain shower is, is on him. He's got to, he's got to send it. He's got to send the workers. He's got to send the renewal. Uh, but if we can't even admit that, right. That like, okay. Right. Yeah. Peeper's got some of the truth, but Peeper doesn't have all of the truth. You can't just hand out Peeper on the street corner. It's not, gonna, it's not, it's not the Bible. Um, we have to, we have to come to a reckoning with that, uh, and without bitterness too, right? Like this should, this should be a good thing. It's like, oh, wait, there's more. (laughs) Oh, oh, look, you know, I can say something to this guy that, that has, he can't read, right? He he can't read, right? But I can tell him his, his spirit will find peace at my church. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, I mean, I, when I'm trying to teach my children things, I don't say like, I'm doing this because I'm right. (laughs) I, I, I say like, you're not going to run across the street because I, because then you won't die. Like, I mean, it, it make it simple. 
And it it isn't actually that hard to communicate. It's it's only hard if you are despairing or hopeless. Hmm. Okay. That's when it's hard. It's not hard for that's why it's it's easy for people to talk endlessly about fandoms because they make them happy. They might be worthless, but they do make them happy. That's why they can talk about it. So if I believe that this gospel avails for time and eternity, then it's not actually that hard to talk about, right? Like what do you what do you do or what is what is your church about? Well, you know, whatever terms you want to use, you know, freedom or this is about life or because I never wake up and think, should I be doing something else with my life? Or it, this is this is so you can be blessed and have a sense of a life that wasn't wasted. I mean, there's so many ways to say what is important and worthwhile and beautiful, right? And, and the reason that you wouldn't or the reason that you wouldn't talk is because you are hopeless concerning these things, which you you don't need to be. But it is, it is a certain kind of a captivity, and it's a mysterious captivity. Not mysterious in that I can't see it or I don't know where it comes from necessarily, but mysterious in its extent. And it, it comes in when precisely when people, it occurs precisely when people really don't believe their own stuff. It's the sort of, it's, it's the sort of hollowness that enters in right before you just stop saying it because you didn't believe it anyway. Okay. And I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be speaking. I wouldn't say these things if I wanted them to be the case, but there, there is a horrible hollowness and it's, it, it really is throughout American Christianity. We have our own instantiation of it. Catholics mumbling in horribly written, modernized English along to a mass that is like pointless that no one understands and no one practices their churches on teachings is a different instantiation. The perpetual adolescence of most of American evangelicalism is still another instantiation. It's all the same sickness of of being despairing, of being hopeless. And I don't want that. And I think that the way out of it for us is a pursuit of truth and with truth the beauty and the life and the joy that attend truth because otherwise we're stuck in a hopeless public opinion cycle. And that's why our churches change as much as they do because they're in pursuit of public approval. And most of them are turning into Herbert Hoover more than any other president. They used to matter and people thought they were important and it could be that one day no one even knows that they existed. So I don't want that to happen. Yeah, um, I, I I wish I had a catchy line to to, to wrap it up here. Um, I don't want it to happen either. Uh, I I believe that the King, who is risen, whose good word is not just a a good word. It, it is a good spell. It is is a gospel. It is a meta reality. It is the Spirit of God Himself. What you said, apocalyptically changing my life. Yeah. And the one time event which marked this with water is a daily event that I experience as repentance. And in that repentance, there's a freedom that my neighbor, who's not a Christian, just never gets, never knows. Unless, of course, I, I say something to him. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. <laughs>